Hello, everyone, and welcome to Here's the Plan, our youth-led podcast where we're working out a 10-step plan to rescue our generation's future. I'm James Miller. And I'm Bella Lack. And this week, we're looking at the problem of plastics. I'm sure you'll have heard the statistic that there are projected to be more plastic than fish in the ocean by 2050. And I'm sure many of you will have heard time and time again of the enormous impact that plastic has on marine life and on people all around the world. But plastic pollution is not just restricted to garbage patches in the ocean or landfill sites in Indonesia. Less spoken about are the microplastics that are in our water, our air, our food, and everywhere. In fact, a study estimates that the average adult consumes approximately 2,000 microplastics per year just through their salt intake. Last year, microplastics were found in human lungs and in our blood. And I think we're only just beginning to conceive of the health implications that might have. Today, we're talking to Fionn Ferreira, an inventor and chemistry student from Ireland. Several years ago, at just 18, he discovered a way that we might be able to remove microplastics from water. With that idea, he was crowned the global grand prize winner at the Google Science Fair, and he began to get his concept turned into a real-life solution. We chatted to him all about his idea, the plastic problem, and generally the role of science and innovation in making change. We hope you like it. How we like to start every conversation, we like to start with a bit of an icebreaker. We took off a lot of interesting stuff about you <laughs> on the internet, a lot of different things. What we ended up deciding on was we wanted to talk to you about the planet that's named after you. <laughs> the planet that's named after me. Okay. Yeah, interesting. So it's planet, I think, 975312 or so. And it's a planet which was named after me as a result of the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair. So anyone who gets like first or second prize there gets a planet named after them by MIT. And back when I was, I think I was 16 when I participated, I it's like an international science fair. I exhibited a project and I got second place. So therefore, it immediately meant that I got a planet named after me, which I didn't realize myself until one day in the mail, this, this certificate came with embossed pictures of the planet and stuff. And I was like, oh, wow. Where is the planet? So it's in the asteroid belt near Jupiter, let's say, mm-hmm. if that kind of helps. But yeah, you can see it with a very strong telescope. It's a minor planet. So it's, I think, 300 kilometers wide. So pretty small. But yeah, I don't plan on visiting it anytime soon. <laughs> what I find quite cool, actually, was so my university, the University of Groningen, there we've got a Nobel Prize winner in the chemistry faculty, Ben Ferencha, and he works on molecular motors. But one of the things you get when you get a Nobel Prize is a planet named after you. Oh, wow. So the university, as a joke, have this parking spot for a bike. And there's a little sign above it. And it's reserved for people with planet names after <laughs> And there's only one parking spot. So on my first day going to class, I thought, oh, this is great. There's a little parking spot just for me. Little, little like rain shelters so the bike doesn't get wet. And I parked. And then half an hour later, my bike was taken away. And I was like, what's going on? And it turned out that they, you know, it was like for Ben and they didn't realize that other people also planet named after them. So now there's two spots there. So, uh, you know, I'm happy. It's a nice segue from something so big to how you got to focusing on microplastics, human pollution products. And when, I guess, because that's so important. How old were you? For me, I think the microplastic journey started just by seeing plastic in general, right? So larger plastic. And for me, what made that quite worrying was just being living by the coastline in Ireland. I was always exposed to big plastic on the shore, 
And at first it was always just told to me that it really wasn't harmful to the environment. It was just something that lies on the shore and looks nasty that you should gather up, but like it doesn't really harm anything except for the, the turtles, which don't actually exist in Ireland anyway. At the beginning, I was indifferent. But then really when I started reading or hearing about microplastic, and at the time it really wasn't a media element, but when I really started reading and hearing about the smaller plastic particles, I just got really worried because nobody was really measuring for it. And it was just something unknown. So I thought I want to figure out if there's plastic in the water in the sea where I was, and if there was also plastic in the groundwater. So that's really what started my journey. And basically, the only way that some people had looked at for testing for plastics was like these really crude methods at the time. So like hot needle method, where you look through a microscope, bring a hot needle close, and you try to like stick to a piece of plastic with the heat. But it's a very crude method. And in my opinion, is, is yeah, not very accurate. So I thought at the time I was playing with light sensors, and I thought about ways that we could use light to measure plastic, specifically spectroscopy. So spectroscopy is where you analyze the light, you shine through a sample of water. And by looking at the light that comes out the other side, you can figure out what's in the water and the type of plastics and the amounts. So that's what started me on the journey to measure plastic, which was a really deep wormhole because there was no standardized methods. And then that later resulted in me seeing that there was a lot of plastic in the water where I lived. So that meant that it really inspired me to then actually do something about those. That's fantastic. So you started off very concerned about this level of plastic, uh, microplastics in the water, and you found a way to measure them. How did you then come up with a solution? How did you stumble across this idea that you've had to try and remove the microplastics from the water? Was it a divine lightning bolt of inspiration that struck you from nowhere? Or where did it come from? Well, I think that if all scientific ideas were just divine lightning bolts that appear and then you've got the idea, the scientific process would be really boring because what I love in the scientific process is the process of actually figuring stuff out and working through ideas. And that's why I study science, right? For me, it basically started with looking at what is being done about these plastics because there's loads of them in the water that I'm testing. And I realized not very much. People are drinking about five grams of plastic every week, so a credit card's worth. And the plastic itself isn't really the risk, but the plastic can bring a lot of other toxic and harmful components with it when you ingest it. So therefore, that can be really, really worrisome for particularly for yeah when you're drinking the water. So I got worried about that. I looked at the methods that were out there to remove plastics from water and realized that there wasn't really anything. Okay, there was like filtration ideas, so like reverse osmosis and things, and they all could take away big plastic particles or bigger ones. But the minute things went down to the like nano or micrometer scale, there were really big challenges. And particularly these nanoplastics, which are oftentimes smaller than the width of a human hair, or even smaller than a red blood cell, those tiny plastic particles are almost impossible to get out of water using conventional filtration technologies. So I thought we have to step away from a size exclusion-based approach and instead look at approach where we actually use the chemistry of the plastic. That's difficult because all plastics are really quite different in their structure, but they all have one thing in common, or almost all have one thing in common, and that is having a big, long carbon backbone. So lots of carbon atoms bound together. 
And that is uh, inherently non-polar, which means that it's similar in structure to the oil which was used to make it. And that means that if you bring oil in an area with plastic, typically the plastic will stick to the oil rather than stay in the water phase. So I tested this. I added some oil to a water containing some bits of plastic and realized that the plastic would stick to the oil. But of course, generating oil spills is the last thing we really want to do in the environment. So then I thought, what if we could control the way this oil moves in the environment? And we can do that perhaps through something relatively simple, and that is magnetizing the oil. I had this really small little science kit at home where you had this oily mixture called ferrofluid, which you could then pull around using magnets. So I thought, what if I could make one of these? It turns out making a ferrofluid isn't quite as simple as I had hoped, but once you get the ratios correct of oil and magnetite powder, which is basically rust powder, it's a really straightforward process and something that I tried out and worked pretty well. So then I was uh, at the stage where I had a method that worked pretty well. It could pick up plastics from water and then using magnets, you could direct the way things moved and direct the picking up process. Can I ask to take you back a step? Because there are so many young people I know at 12, 13, 14 who care about plastic, the environment, about extinction. What do you think there was about you that made you so extremely curious? And if I can use the word different, that you took a step out and said, I'm actually going to do something about this. Because I know thousands, probably millions of young people across the world right now are concerned, posting Instagram, posting tweets. But what's that leap between talking about it and doing something? I think that a lot of young people, as you say, find it really difficult to actually do something about the problems that they feel passionate about. And I think that what's really important to remember is the tools that you have at hand. I lived literally in the middle of nowhere, like going to a university or even to a grocery store was like a big deal for me. So it meant that at home, we would build pretty much anything we used. Uh, my father is a wooden boat builder. I need a piece of equipment. I just build it. and. I think that that raised in me just a love for inventing and reinventing and figuring out how things work. And then also, I was just so inherently in love with the environment where I grew up that I just felt like I had to do something to change. So I feel like the best way to actually do action is to spend more time in the environment that you feel passionate about, because you will inevitably get more attached to it and ultimately get so angry and so passionate about the problems that are being faced by it until you actually um, yeah, make a difference. So then I think the way that you do that really depends on you. For me, I feel like the scientific process is very ingrained in me. I would always take things apart and try and figure out how they worked and try and make them better. But for other people, that activism can come in a completely different form. So identifying that form is important. But I believe that everybody has the, the power to actually make a difference, just that not everybody is cut out to be a scientist or perhaps somebody who participates in protests or whatever. But I think that that's important is actually identifying what you're good at and what you enjoy doing. And for me, that just turned out to be science. Absolutely. Find your niche. I remember there's a podcast that I've listened to, and I don't know if either of you have, have heard it, called How to Save a Planet. And on that, they advocate you've got to draw a Venn diagram, find an issue that you care about, find out what you're good at and find out what you enjoy. And at the intersect of all three of those things, you'll have an area where you can really make a difference. Yeah. And I totally, totally agree with that. And it's so fantastic that you found yours at such a young age. And something that I'm really interested to know, because 
just before we started recording, you were saying how busy you are with work at the moment and with learning and teaching. How is it that you balance this next stage in developing your solution with life at university? It must be really difficult. That's a really good question, actually. And I feel like people always assume that after making a discovery like this, you build a business, you scale it, and that becomes your life. I am a scientist. I like that process of inventing and innovating from that small scale. And that is what I want to focus on. I want to solve more problems. I don't want this to be the only problem I ever solve, because that would just be such an incredibly large waste of my time. The plastic problem is not solved, right? I'm cleaning up plastics. Yes, we will need to do this for hundreds of years, but ultimately we want to stop putting plastic into the environment in the first place. And that's something I'm very passionate about. Basically, what I do now is mainly contract engineers. So I got funding from Robert Downey Jr.'s Footprint Coalition. And really through their grants, I've been able to contract engineers to incorporate my method into a device that works at microplastic removal. And that for me is a really exciting process. However, I don't, I would say, go to the lab anymore and work on this particular idea anymore because I feel like the lab work segment is done. We've shown that it works in the lab. So therefore, in the university, my day job, I don't know how I call it. I um, I just go to class. I'm a regular student. I did my bachelor project on redox flow batteries and how you can use magnetic resonance spectroscopy to look at the state of charge of these batteries. Super exciting, super different, but still climate-based solutions. And that's how I see maybe my life going on in the future is that I can be involved in the scientific process, looking at new problems, doing very grassroots inventions and ideas and scaling, and then passing that on to engineers or doing publications and moving on. Because I think that's the link in the whole process that I fit into. You talked about dealing with post-production of the plastic and cleaning up. Do you also think about before the production happens and the hyper consumption, or do you think it's just more effective for you to have your focus on after it's done, for example? Because I know me and James, in terms of campaigning, for campaigning, it's easier to focus on like targeting the businesses, targeting the corporations. For you, do you think about that or is it just easier to have more of a niche focus? That's a really interesting question. I think for me, I like the scientific process and working on these very early stage ideas. I think that to have a truly original idea, and particularly in this research field, if you go in there trying to solve a problem, very targeted, often you'll have slight tunnel vision and you won't associate other things. I think a quote that I have from my supervisor, which I think is amazing, is that if you can plan out your research or make predictions on the way it will go, then it's not going to be good research. Because Really, the whole point and the reason why I found this microplastic removal method was because I wasn't looking for a microplastic removal method. I was more just playing with concepts around microplastic. And then I found things that happened to pick it up. So the way I typically go about the innovation process and the research process is more focused on just looking at these different methods. Look how they interlink, finding out new things, which might just be how a new chemical reaction works and publishing that. And that might help somebody else in an unknowing way. So I know it sounds like a complete shot in the dark, like you're innovating for something without a goal, but often that I think gives the the most unique things. That's really interesting. I'm just going to take one question that's a bit more of a deeper dive before we kind of zoom out again. I'm also studying science at university. I, I'm not beyond undergrad yet, but it often seems to me that 
the higher you get in the academic hierarchy, the more specialized you become. You develop a field of expertise and you have a lab that works on it and you keep doing new experiments related to that and becoming narrower and narrower. Is that the way you want to go down or do you want to keep it broad and keep flicking between different areas of precise research? So I think it's being specialized on a specific area is not a problem itself. However, it only becomes a problem if you have tunnel vision and only really think about things related to that area. As long as you remember that you are specialized in this area, but there are so many more that could help you and don't be afraid to dabble in those. I think that the research process can still be really, really broad. But I think that this is also the reason why we see quite a few young inventors coming up with quite unique ideas. And I think that that's due to perhaps them not yet having this tunnel vision and instead having a broader picture of science, making unconventional connections, and then ultimately coming up with quite unique ideas. If you'll forgive me, I'm going to take a little return trip back to your concept. And you said that at the moment you have a slightly more hands-off approach and that you're letting the engineers do their work with their specialisms, but then you're checking in to see what the progress is being made on a regular basis. What stage is it at now, do you think? Are you allowed to say? How is it progressing? So we now have a continuous flow prototype that works. So we can flow water through a device that uh, picks up plastic from water, and then the water can flow out. So it's something you could hook up into a house water supply quite easily. And we're seeing really high extraction rates. So that works. So really our current research focus is scaling that further to like a wastewater treatment plant. I think that the place where we need to implement this is really like wastewater treatment or places where plastics are entering the environment, but also drinking water treatment to to prevent us from having to drink all this plastic all the time. I think implementing this in the sea or in a river is really more difficult. I think rivers would work, but in the sea, it's not that it would be harmful or or dangerous, but more, I just feel like the plastic concentration is so much lower there than in the water entering the sea that we need to try and solve the places where the plastic's entering the sea before we try and tackle the sea itself. And sometimes we also have to accept that certain types of pollution will have more of a negative effect if we try and remove them from the environment than if we just leave them there. So that's why I think currently we're at a stage where we've got this continuous stage prototype, which would work in small water flowing systems. But really now the major task begins of scaling that to something quite large scale. Definitely. I can see what you mean when it comes to the concentrations of plastics in the sea. It's going to be much easier and much more cost effective to harvest those at points of entry rather than in the vastness of the ocean. We were thinking at one point of Boyenslat, the Dutch inventor, and his solution to collect plastic. And that relies on ocean currents concentrating them in particular points. But I suppose the same probably doesn't happen at the scale of microplastics. So it does. However, they're underwater. So a lot of microplastics are not floating at the surface. So it would mean that you need something that can go, I don't know, 400 meters down. So that makes it really challenging. Actually, last summer, I took a trip to the Arctic. Really, that trip was interesting for me because the Arctic, I thought, was perhaps one of the most remote regions on Earth. And there we found a lot of plastic. And it was really due to the Gulf Stream and several other currents bringing plastic northwards. So it actually served as a really interesting point to be able to measure how plastic is accumulating in the environment. We saw a lot of microplastic in the depths. But again, it's really difficult to extract because it is concentrated, but just super deep and uh, maybe even sitting on the seafloor. I saw in this quote, what I read a few years ago, actually, which really stuck with me, which is that we're living in a society where one of our biggest legacies 
could be a plastic water bottle that we just use on a whim and then throw away. I know for you, that's not going to be your biggest legacy and you won't let it be. So I want to ask you quite a broad one, but what would you want your biggest legacy to be when you're considering all the science, all the change that you're making and you're doing? So I think for me, the most important legacy is not the microplastic removal technology or actually removing plastics from water, but more, I think, just showing that, you know, these small ideas that you can have when you're 15, 16, that they have the power to make, you know, a true impact. People take those seriously. And I want more people to see from my story that young inventors can invent. We can make things that work and that work pretty well. So please take us seriously so that more people from a younger age can invent for the better. I want to see a community of more people who are just happy to invent and enjoy the inventive process. Because I think if we've got a society where more people are willing to try and solve problems with the materials that they have, will result in a lot more creative ideas, which can ultimately impact for the better a lot of different aspects of our life here on Earth. I know you say this is a passion of yours, but it's also the case you're actively trying to facilitate this, aren't you? You're doing a lot of different things to try and engage and empower young people to invent things and to come up with solutions to help society. Would you like to tell us a bit more about some of those? Yeah, sure. I visit quite a lot of conferences, first off. And that sounds kind of counterintuitive, right? Because conferences typically have old people or like business CEOs. But I think what's really important in this movement is that we make sure that the, the older scientists and the funders and the grant givers take the ideas from young people seriously and actually want to invest in them and want to uh, give money to that. Then I think making it cool to actually invent is so important. So I work together with fairs like the Irish National Science Fair, the Google Science Fair, Intel ISEF, which is now Regeneron ISEF, and fairs like that where we really make attractive the idea of exhibiting your ideas and just make more people want to engage in those science fairs. And then also trying to make the tools available necessary to do invention and to do science. I actually started out with my own little platform for that, where basically people could find these scientific tools. And now I've actually given that content to Utopia, which is a platform by Melody Weisen. And it's a really nice platform where the aim is to link together youth and give them tools and tangible things they can do to be change makers. My tools are very, very hands-on. So it could be like, you know, how to do a literature review or how to do a keyword search all the way up to like building a microscope at home. But I think that these skills are really important ones because if I would have known the possibilities of tests and things I could have actually done at home, then I would have actually been able to do so much more. So am I right in saying that you think innovation, invention, and the power of youth are going to get us out of this environmental crisis that we've got ourselves in? I think innovation and invention will inevitably have to get us out of this crisis because currently we don't have enough solutions to be able to run the world sustainably in terms of energy generation and in terms of so many different things. So inevitably, we will need scientists to come up with new solutions all the time. So innovation is really absolutely necessary in the transition to a more circular and green economy and society. Um, the power of youth and youth involvement in that I also think is super important because we are, what, 25% of the global population, but like 100% of the global future. And therefore, I think engaging young people from a younger age in this space is something that we just require. Um, otherwise, just progress is too slow. We have 
not that much time to work. And the younger we get people involved, the quicker they can actually be doing active change. Absolutely. I think we're going to wrap up soon and let you go, Fionn, but we like to take a broader perspective and zoom out at the end of each of our podcasts and ask if you could ask one thing of governments, if you could ask one thing of businesses and one thing of people at home, what would it be? Let's start with the governments. So I think governments need to realize that microplastic pollution is quite dangerous for us and it will cost the governments a lot in healthcare moving forward if we don't do anything about it. And the only way to support microplastic removal efforts is to make it mandatory to remove microplastics from water in the first place. So I really want to see some government actually make that mandatory. Because at the moment I built this technology, it works at removing plastics from water. But unless we have governmental support to actually implement this technology for microplastic removal, nobody will remove it from water because the funding won't be there and the will won't be there. It's the government's job to make it mandatory for microplastic removal and prevention. Then going down to the business level, I think that businesses need to be held accountable for the plastic pollution they produce and trying to avoid these single-use plastics and moving towards plastics that, well, if they are single-use, they are ones that are truly biodegradable, not just these kind of fake biodegradable things that are currently going on, or moving away completely from plastic uh, products, unless these are products that will last many years, I think is something that should be brought into place. But also, I would love to see more youth involved. I think youth advisory boards and perhaps these different advisory groups have really shown to impact for the better a lot of different businesses. So I think bringing that into play more in businesses is something that's really necessary. And then on the home level, I would really wish it if I'd see more families support young people and particularly their children in whatever crazy ideas they, well, maybe not all crazy ideas, but most crazy ideas they have. I remember when I asked for, I know, a soldering iron and like some like wires and stuff to make little electronic circuits. My parents didn't blink twice and they just stopped them for me. Like I was four years old, but they figured that soldering iron is hot. And if I burn myself, then I'll only do that once. And I think that actually giving the tools necessary to curious minds to actually invent and do science at home is really necessary and it needs support for it to actually work. So definitely don't just brush ideas under the table as being useless or from a child, but instead just let them play with it. And you never know, it could be an idea that changes things. Could I ask before we finish for one piece of probably hidden information you haven't revealed before, could you give us your weirdest invention that maybe was unfunctional, couldn't be released into the wider world, but that you made when you were a kid? <laughs> oh my God, there's so many. I can't even imagine uh, what the weirdest is, but there's like lots of different things. Chemists are notoriously lazy, right? Anything that makes my life easier is definitely something I'd invent. One science project I had was a device with which you could use this very obscure chemical reaction called the Briggs-Rauscher reaction to measure the antioxidant level of different foods. Because my parents were always telling me that the berries that like we grew in our land were like much better and had much more vitamin C and much more better carotene than the frozen ones we could buy in the store. And I actually proved that using this device. And then it was a device where you could throw in any food sample and then it would uh, do a test and actually tell you the antioxidant levels. Basically, the way it worked was this reaction that depends on free radicals. And if there's an antioxidant present, it uses up the free radicals. And the uh, color change will only occur when all the antioxidant is used up. But it worked pretty well. That's really cool. That sounds a lot more functional than the sort of slug hotels I made when I was younger. 
Oh, I made slow hotels too. In fact, we're currently working on a slow hotel entertainment project. I don't think I, I have anything that comes close. I think I built a marble run once around my room. That's like old toilet roll tubes. Well, thank you so much for coming. It was a real pleasure to have you on. And I know both Bella and I are going to keep track of, of your progress in the coming years for any new inventions that come out, any papers that get published, or any more exciting engagement work that you're doing with young people. And I'm really looking forward to sharing this with the rest of the world. Thank you so much for speaking to us. It's been fascinating. Thank you for having me on. I think this has been a really fun conversation. And if you ever want to have another conversation like this, let me know. That was a brilliant discussion, Bella. It's so great to talk to Fionn. He's amazing and it's so strange to think he's he's done so much and he's only a year older than both of us. I've always thought it would be amazing to do what Fionn has done and come up with an innovative solution that can make a real difference and then have the pleasure and the joy of seeing that be turned into reality and be scaled up and be applied everywhere. I think that would be really amazing. Yeah. And I loved within that episode, we learned a lot about plastic. We learned a lot about environmental solutions, but also he gave us lots of sort of nuggets of philosophy. He talked about trial and error, about how he grew up having to test things, test them again, constantly rework his ideas and find new solutions, which I think is just a good life philosophy to take away from what he told us. Upon some further research, I did find some things we talked about a bit terrifying, obviously plastic in itself. But the vested interests and industry lobbying, how pervasive the industry lobbying is and how ready and willing they are to fight for the continuation of plastic, despite how damaging it is. And I read this story about a competition being hosted at lots of different primary schools and the kids were encouraged to create animals out of recycled plastic. And the competition was being funded and sponsored by A Bag's Life, which is a recycling promotion and education effort, but also a lobbying group that fights restrictions on plastic. And the organisation is part of the Plastics Industry Association, which includes Shell, Exxon, Chevron. And I think it's scary the length these organisations are willing to go to influence the majority of the population. Yes. And actually, I think To be honest, there are very few things on earth that make me more angry than this. We know the oil industry for decades has been stalling action on climate change, and that's becoming relatively well publicised now. But what I think very few people have realised, because it's talked about a little less, is that oil companies, they know now that fossil fuels are going to decline in powering the world very soon in the power sector and very soon in transport and other areas as well. And what they see as their rescue plan for their businesses is not to switch to other forms of energy, it's to continue to produce oil, but to turn that into new products. And those products are, of course, plastics. They're making synthetic polymers from these organic compounds that they're turning into plastics. And you could say, all right, plastics are still going to be used in the world, someone's going to make that plastic. But you see what they're doing. They are very deliberately lobbying for rollbacks of plastic legislation. They're trying to increase demand for plastics. In COVID, for example, they very deliberately hopped on the confusion about whether reusable bags being brought into supermarkets might help transmit and spread COVID. And they started lobbying for plastic bag bans to be lifted so that they could produce more plastic bags again for 
for supermarkets, I think it shows that we're going to have to keep a real eye on these industries because I think that they're bound to start the same misinformation, disinformation campaigns, backdoor lobbying and media capture as they have done in in terms of fossil fuel use in, in the energy sector. And actually, just as a side note for this, if people do want to learn more, really highly recommend Amy Westervelt's podcast, Drilled. She has done a fantastic mini series on exactly this, on oil industries turning towards plastics and their plans for the future. But yes, that makes me very angry. So maybe we should turn on to something else. Have you got any more optimistic points coming out of this, Bella? Something I find which gives me a bit of future positivity is the idea of circularity and a circular economy. And Fionn talked about microplastics in the ocean, but we also talked about stopping plastics at the source. And a way to do that is to design circularity into the production of plastics. And some countries are already doing that, like the Netherlands, which have a plan to have a 100% circular economy by 2050. So although everyone is at different places in their path towards that, some countries are very far ahead. So that gives me a bit of hope. What about you? Yeah, I think something that is positive is that where there has been legislation and policy introduced to try to tackle plastics, you do see, in some cases, some really profound effects. So like in the UK, I think the example that's always raised is the plastic bag charge that was brought in a few years ago. Just a 5p charge added for single-use plastic bags in supermarkets has apparently reduced plastic bag use by more than 98% in major supermarkets, which is pretty extraordinary. Although it is also, it's worth noting that apparently <laughs> in tandem with that, the sales of those reusable carrier bags, bags for life has increased quite a lot and often they're being bought and used as single use carrier bags. Yeah, it's complicated. But the EU's also just a few weeks ago brought in some legislation specifically on microplastics to ban microplastics across uh, a lot of products where they're intentionally added like in cosmetics, where they add colorant and texture, and in artificial sports grounds as well, where they're like a little infill material and glitter and detergents and toys and all sorts. And the UK has something similar on that too. So there is legislation coming through and it is having an effect. I don't know about you, but I remember thinking about plastics long before I ever thought about the climate crisis or biodiversity loss. I remember when I was seven eight in schools there were talks of recycling there was a recycling box and who was going to be on duty to take the box out and we've been thinking about it for what feels like so long now that is surprising the legislation is just being passed now to control plastic yeah no you're, you're quite right i guess it's a lot more visible a lot more tangible than the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis for a lot of people and a lot easier to understand but yes, I do wonder if the way that we get taught about this stuff and the way that, that we understand it as children and as adults is that it's all about recycling, 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 recycling. You just need to put these boxes in the right recycling bins and then it'll all be okay. I think recycling is important, but it should be the very last step. It should be used to clean up the residual products that are around after we've done as much as we possibly can to cut plastic production and cut the demand for plastics. 
Yeah, and I think there are so many stages to ensure that recycling is effective. First of all, you're assuming that people actually recycle, and many don't. Second, you're assuming that they recycle effectively and know which box to put everything, what can be recycled and what can't, and most people don't. And then once you've done all that and gone through all those barriers, then you're assuming that it's actually going to be recycled. And most of it isn't. And it does end up in landfill, usually in another country. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm all behind a patchwork of solutions and recycling over dumping straight into a body of water. But I think we have to focus on reducing consumption before we even look at the recycling box. All the seven recycling boxes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. And I know this is something that you want to talk a bit about as well. There is a global treaty being worked on to end plastics around the world happening. There is. There is indeed. And the very first draft of a potential treaty was published just a few weeks ago in September. And there's going to be more negotiations coming up in November. And they're hoping, I think, to wrap this up by the end of 2024. Which I don't know about you, but I think that's very soon. And I've very rarely ever heard of any treaties which are passed as quickly as that and where agreements happen so fast. Yeah, there are lots of different policies. So I've seen a bit of the paper, the treaty. It's a lot of heavy wording, but essentially the idea is to make sure that at every stage of the production and consumption and then what happens to the plastic after the consumption, there are policies and there are laws yeah, no, I think you're right. That's the impression that I get, that it's going to encompass, as you say, all elements of the production, use, consumption, waste and treatment side of things. And it's going to work, as I understand it, potentially quite like the Paris Agreement, in that it might be that every country develops their own self-set target, like the nationally determined contributions that you have in the Paris Climate Agreement, where every country determines their own contribution to emissions reductions it might be that all countries set their own plastic reduction targets. So it'll be interesting to see how successful that is. And I think coming back to our earlier points, to what extent the big oil producing states and fossil fuel companies are going to try to lobby against ambitious targets as part of that treaty. I know that Saudi Arabia, for example, they're already pushing for a really strong emphasis on waste management and the recycling side of things over and above reducing the production of plastics, which of course would, would hurt their revenues from oil production. And because James, like you say, because it's going to be like at NDCs, it means it's first of all up to the goodwill of politicians to just commit to these pledges, but also up to us to pressure them into making ambitious pledges and then upholding them. Absolutely. With that, Bella, are you ready to move on to what people at home can do to help? I am. Do you want to kick us off or shall I? You go ahead. Okay. I think in a way, even more so than with some of the other issues maybe that we've spoken about, I feel like tackling the plastic problem is a really good issue for campaigning. There have been a lot of examples of really successful campaigns for, to cut plastic from businesses, to get supermarkets to reduce plastic consumption, and for, for legislation to be introduced at a countrywide level as well. And I think there are a lot of fantastic organisations working on this. Perhaps the most obvious one for me would be Greenpeace. So if you look at their website and the website of others, find some campaigns that are on salient issues that are going on right now, 
I think potentially a really important one might be this global plastics treaty that's being negotiated in the next month or so and join in and help push governments and businesses to cut plastic production and use. And make microplastic removal mandatory, like Fionn said, because it can be done and it should be. I mean, he's creating these technologies, but it doesn't matter if the technology and the solutions are there if no one's using them. I think focusing on activism and change making itself, this is more of a recommendation Fionn spoke about. And actually, James, you talked about drawing a Venn diagram, finding an issue that you care about, finding what you're good at and finding out what you enjoy and then working at the intersection of that. And that's exactly what Fionn did with his invention. He loves inventing. He likes exploring, discovering. And I think what we can all do is go away, discover what we enjoy, what we can change in our life to turn it into a form of activism, whether it's writing, cooking, starting a blog, specializing in environmental law or building a a device to remove microplastics from the ocean, incorporate something meaningful into what you already care about. A bit intangible, but I think it's important because when we met him, James, I'm sure you'll agree, Fionn is one of the most energetic, passionate, just a great inventor and activist. And I think we can all have that passion and energy if we do what we love whilst making change. Absolutely. It's really, really infectious, his energy. And it's it's brilliant. And I think as one last point, I think, for what people can do, partly leading on from that, if you think about where's the most likely place that you could go to to find other people that care about plastics and are energized to do something about it is probably a cleanup, like a beach cleanup or a park cleanup where people go and, and collect plastic litter. It's difficult to estimate what kind of impacts that all of these cleanups collectively are having around the world. I think they can make a real difference, especially in very localized regions. But I do know that the Ocean Conservancy International Coastal Cleanup has monitored how much trash they've collected across their cleanup since they started. And it's, you know, it's on the scale of hundreds of millions of kilograms. And so, yeah, I would say a really fun, positive way to go and meet like-minded people, have an immediate tangible impact, start discussions, hatch plans, build community, go and join a cleanup. Yeah, agreed. Can I add a little one, which is, I don't think shame has a massive part in this, but we need to discourage conspicuous consumption. And it happened with plastic because it is slightly embarrassing now to take a plastic bag anywhere because we know there are better alternatives to use. But I think we can continue that by discouraging people from constantly buying new things. This is about consumption in general, but specifically plastic, valuing possessions that we do have. And there are so many alternatives now, lots of zero waste shops. There are lots of alternatives to using plastic. And I think continuing to perpetuate that attitude of not shame, but encouraging people to choose the better alternative. Absolutely. I think that's all we have time for today. I always say that every episode, don't I? I mean, it's not all we have time for, is it? That's just a lie. That's a blatant lie. Or maybe a more accurate thing would be. That's probably all the time you have for us. (laughs) That's probably the most amount of time that you're going to tolerate us nattering in your ear today. So thank you for joining us for this episode. If you've enjoyed it, we would really appreciate you sharing it and leaving a review. That way more people will find our podcast and hear what we have to say and what our guests have to say and all the solutions that they're suggesting and that we're debriefing on. 
And if you'd like to support us further, you can tip us the equivalent of a coffee on coffee.com with a K and an I. We'll have links to this in our social media all in the show notes. Next time on Here's the Plan, we're speaking to another Irishman. Professor Anil Madhavapedi is a professor of planetary computing at Cambridge University, and he's also the director of the Cambridge Centre for Carbon Credits. That is the subject of our conversation. It's the big, messy and hugely controversial topic of carbon credits. What they are, what's wrong with them and how this group of ecologists and computer scientists are teaming up to try to fix them. This is going to be another beautifully science-packed episode. So look forward to it. Bye. Bye.